You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, Town Center. It's good to be with you. I want to start with a question. How does the church grow? This is a question that many pastors, myself included, uh, ask. And I've spent lots of time looking into different leadership videos and trying to push past uh, growth barriers. And, you know, I think what I've seen in the last few decades is that North America, by and large, has been defined by what can be known as the seeker-sensitive movement. Now, maybe you've heard of this, but the script sounds something like this, if you're not familiar with it. We want to make the church as attractive as possible to the unchurched. So the creativity begins. Cue the great coffee, the excellent programs, a dynamic and funny speaker, flashy graphics, lighting, and videos and fun events. And in addition, we also try to remove as many obstacles so that new people will come to church. So the services become shorter. Christian symbols like the cross begin to disappear. Hard portions of scripture are avoided. Christian practices like corporate prayer start to decrease. And in the process, unintentionally, the seeker-sensitive movement essentially says, we need to help Jesus out a little bit if people are going to place their faith in him because he isn't beautiful enough by himself. We need to spice things up a little bit around here for people to get in the doors and stay. Now, there's this quote by Francis Chan, which I find pretty pretty um, convicting. He says this. He says, while our good intentions may have gotten some people in the door, they also may have caused a whole generation to have a lower view of our God. It is hard for the average person to reconcile why a group of people supposedly filled with God's spirit, able to speak with the creator of the universe, would need gimmicks. Am I saying that any of those things are necessarily wrong? No, they're not. Like, Amen for great coffee and excellent programs and all of that. But what is the reason that people are drawn to the church? Is it all these extra things or is it for Christ himself? Because what happens under this model? Well, churches tend to grow numerically, but they barely grow spiritually. Maybe you've heard the cliche, uh, you know, that the, the, the church can grow extremely wide, but have inch deep faith. So church service attenders are produced instead of resilient disciples who love Jesus wholeheartedly and live on mission. Indeed, just because something grows doesn't mean it's healthy or growing for the right reasons. We know this because things like disease grow. So the more important question to ask then is why is the church growing? Now, if you just look east, I don't know which direction east is, wherever it is, if you just look east to what's going on in the church of Iran, you will see the fastest growing church in the world right now. now. Here's a brief history for you. During the Iranian revolution of 1979, there was a hardline Islamic regime that was established. And over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All the missionaries were kicked out, evangelism was outlawed, Bibles in Persian were banned and soon became scarce, several pastors were killed. The church came under tremendous pressure, and many feared that it would soon wither away and die altogether. But the exact opposite happened. 
in the last 20 years, more Iranians have become Christians than in the previous 13 centuries. So 20 years compared to 1,300 years since Islam came to Iran. In 1979, there was an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background. Today, there are hundreds of thousands. Some even estimate more than a million. And this church has grown without any church buildings, any form of central leadership, paid staff, seminaries. So why is the church growing? Well, I want to submit to you for the exact same reasons we see the church in the book of Acts growing. In Acts 1.15, we see 120 believers gathered in the upper room to pray. This is right before Pentecost happens, right? Beginning of the church was only 120 people. By the time we reach Pentecost in Acts 2, the church has grown to 3,000. And then we see in our text today that the church expanded to 5,000 men, so approximately 10,000 total, including women and children. And so in Acts chapter 3 and 4, we see the story of how one simple act of faith led to the transformation of an entire region. So what led to this rapid growth? Well, three things. Number one, being with Jesus. Number two, spirit-empowered boldness. And three, radical obedience. Now, before we look at these three components, let's briefly recap the story. So last week, Tim would have preached to you guys the story in Acts 3, when Peter and John were on the way to the temple to pray. And the lame beggar is healed. They say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So the lame man from birth stands up, walks around, does a few Jiminy Cricket leaps, praises God. What a story. Now, this doesn't happen every day, right? So the people in the temple, they praise God. And they're filled with wonder and amazement, the text says. Now, because this wasn't a so subtle event, Peter has to give an explanation of what just took place. So he stands up, he addresses the people, proclaiming Jesus as the one who healed this man. And he declares that Jesus rose from the dead as well and calls people to repentance that they might receive forgiveness of their sins. Now, in chapter 4 today, the captain of the temple, who was second in command after the high priest, so the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, they become annoyed at Peter's teaching. I love that word. They, they became annoyed. To the effect, sorry, and the effect that this healing had on the people, right? There were now 5,000 men that had committed themselves to the church, and more than that, we know, with women and children included. So why were they greatly annoyed? Well, the Sadducees were sad, you see. Yes, I had to put that in there. We all know the song. Because they were a political religious group who did not believe in the afterlife or the resurrection. You see, the Sadducees had it out for Christians because they believed to have concrete evidence of the resurrection of Christ. And they were preaching that if Christ has risen from the dead, we too will have resurrected bodies in the afterlife the general resurrection. And so here's these guys, Peter and John, going around raising this guy, lame from birth, and proclaiming that Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, has done this. And so this is causing a bit of a kerfuffle. This is happening on their own turf. The Sadducees are the ones who maintained the temple. And so this was happening right in their home court. 
Now, on top of this, the Sadducees were an elite group who worked closely with the Romans to guard their political and economic privileges. So any opposing king to Caesar who rose from the dead, that would disrupt these financial and political arrangements they'd established. So what do they do? They arrest the apostles, and they had the legal right to do this because this was seen as a breach of peace within the temple precincts. A breach of peace within the temple precincts. The Sadducees are scared. The captain of the temple, they're scared. When the kingdom of God breaks in, it's disruptive. God wants to transform entire cities, neighborhoods, regions, and societies. He doesn't just want to light the church on fire. He wants to transform entire communities. And when Christ's power is on display, it rocks the boat of societies because earthly power is threatened. Those in power realize they don't hold ultimate power. King Jesus does. But this divine power didn't manifest itself in protests, debates, and political strength. No, this divine power showed itself in the form of a lame beggar rising to his feet and walking. When the kingdom of God breaks in, it looks like what Jesus announced in Luke 4, proclaiming good news to the poor, setting the captives free, seeing the blind recover their sight, and liberty brought to the oppressed. It looks like a lame man getting up and walking after 40 years. And so after their night in prison, Peter and John were questioned by the council. Peter declares that it's only by Jesus' authority that the lame man was healed, and he states that Jesus is the only one by which people can be saved. The Christians were known as atheists in their context because they only believed in one God. They were speaking to a culture that was very polytheistic. Now, this same Jesus who heals, who, who, who heals is the same Jesus who forgives of sin. In fact, that Greek word, sozo, means to heal or to save. And so what Peter's saying is that this healing was pointing to something greater. Don't just look at this and rejoice. Look at the Savior who also heals. He achieves forgiveness of sin. He is the pathway to salvation. Jesus' name isn't a magic spell. Jesus is healer and savior. And Peter invites the council to join the kingdom. And of course, they refuse. The council, they realize they're in a bit of a pickle. We could almost say they became lame ducks the instant the lame man began to walk. Why? Well, the people are rejoicing. We read this right in the text. They'd seen the miracle take place with their very own eyes through Peter and John. So if the council punished the apostles, they would lose influence and favor with the populace. So all they could do was simply tell them not to talk about Jesus out of fear of the movement gaining more momentum. But at this point, the church has grown to 5,000 men and more than that with women and children. So finally, to my three points, how did the church grow? Well, I think one really key point is verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Our power for ministry and boldness for Christ comes from being with him and knowing him. 
You see, there's a difference between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing him intimately. Just like we can, we can know facts and information about a celebrity or an athlete or whoever it might be and not actually know them personally, well, I think often we can actually approach Scripture like this too. Um, there's an error we can make when we just read Scripture for its own sake. And Jesus even said as much himself in John 5.39. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, we don't find life in Scripture itself, but in the person that Scripture points us to. Praise God that we have the Bible. Praise God we have his word, but it reveals who he is. And so, yes, Scripture reveals Jesus, but do we read our Bibles just to know about Jesus? Or does our Bible reading drive us to, in Jesus' words, come to him that we may have life? Jesus himself is the one who transforms, heals, and gives life. And so my question is, have you encountered Jesus Christ yourself? Peter and John they ministered from a place of divine power because they have both encountered Christ in profound ways. Now, if you see this story in the book of Acts and the rest that unfold in this book, and you think that these are, these are the kind of stories that were just reserved for the book of Acts, right? Just to kind of like get the church off the ground and, you know, the apostles, they had access to more power than the rest of us. Well, let me just remind you that we weren't given a junior Holy Spirit. The same spirit that empowered Peter and John is the same spirit who dwells in us and empowers us today. In fact, I believe the book of Acts is still going. Like Jesus is still building his church. He's still drawing people to himself. Like I said, just look at Iran, look at China, look at Latin America, look at the entire continent of Africa. We're in the midst of the greatest awakening the world has actually seen. It's just the West that has to catch up. God is on the move. The kingdom is breaking in. He will use ordinary people to draw people to himself. It's the spirit who does the work. He moves in power. He moves through miraculous signs like these. And I believe that the message for us is we need to first know Christ. We have to know what he's like. What does his voice sound like? What's a lie that our culture tells us? What's the truth revealed in scripture who God says about us? what he says about the world. When we begin to know him, when we begin to seek him in those quiet, hidden places and hear his voice, man, we're going to have power. Power that comes through the spirit. What are the voices you're listening to? Are you making time to listen to his voice? How do you walk in spiritual authority and become bold for Christ? All it takes is encountering Christ for yourself. Peter and John, they were just regular guys who spent time with Jesus. Oh, maybe for you, you're sitting here right now, you've been following Jesus your whole life, but you know there's more for your discipleship. There's this itch that you just, you, you can't seem to scratch. You want to be that bold, courageous witness for Christ that you read about in the book of Acts, but you feel like there's something blocking you. There's something in the way, and you can't quite figure out what it is. Well, all it takes is one redemptive encounter with Christ. How do I know? Well, this was Peter's story. 
He followed Jesus around for three years, full of zeal, right? He was the guy that got it boldly wrong a lot of the time, but he, he put himself out there, right? He, he loved Jesus. He was full of zeal, ready to prove himself and his loyalty to Jesus at any moment. But when that moment finally came, he denied him three times to a teenage girl. Now, can you imagine the shame that he felt? Good intentions, but poor follow-through. Then he sees his rabbi get crucified. Can you imagine how his shame must have compounded? How could I possibly think Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah? Why did I give three years of my life following this imposter who is just a carpenter? I'm an idiot. Hope dashed, shame multiplied, identity unraveled, future uncertain. But then what? Easter, right? Jesus rose from the dead, amen. Hope restored. Shame and identity crisis, though, still there. Some of you, you're in the middle of an identity crisis right now. Some of you are riddled with shame from something that happened in your past. You believe Jesus could never use you. Well, may I submit to you that perhaps Jesus wants to meet you in the midst of your identity confusion and your shame, that if you let him, He'll transform that shame, give you a new name, and empower you to become a a bold witness for him. So after the resurrection, Jesus, knowing Peter's emotional state, knowing his identity and shame, came to him and said this, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Imagine how Peter must have felt. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, there's always that last 10% though, right? We worry about, um, you know, just, the, just that last little bit of our story. That, like, maybe Jesus, like, maybe he's actually not fully truthful in what he's saying. So Peter had just denied Jesus, and then what? He sees John walk by, right? Text says that John is the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? So the comparison game starts going. Right? He's thinking, well, John didn't deny Jesus like I did three times. Surely Jesus can use that guy. But me? Not me. But Jesus wasn't done with Peter. What does he say next? Verse 21. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You? Follow me. Jesus ministered to Peter's heart. At his lowest point, Peter encountered Jesus. And this transformed him. This was his encounter. 
from timid and afraid to bold and courageous, from shame to Shekinah glory. And they recognized that he had been with Jesus. Jesus wants to bring an encounter with some of you in this room who are steeped in shame and you don't know who you are. When he sees you, he doesn't see you for your brokenness, your sin, and your insecurity, but he sees the potential in you, the broken, sinful, insecure person who has been touched by him and through whom he can bring regional transformation because you've been with him. So how do we encounter Jesus today? Well, there are a lot of touch points that I don't have time to get into today, such as through communion, baptism, worship, fasting, silence and solitude, and Sabbath. But I want to focus on prayer. The high priests and the Sadducees, they could tell that Peter and John had been with Jesus. Now, of course, Peter and John were physically with him during his ministry. But once Jesus ascended to the Father, the apostles still communed with Christ through prayer. Right? Prayer was their lifeline. Prayer was the pathway to intimacy with Jesus. A life of abiding in Christ must include prayer. Prayer is all about love. So let's look at just the devotion that the apostles and the early Christians had to prayer. What we see in Acts 1.14, I mentioned this, when they were in the upper room, as 120 of them gathered, what were they doing? They were praying, devoting themselves to prayer. So that's what they're doing at the beginning of Acts. Then we see in Acts 2.42, if we flip over a little bit, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Prayer was central. And then in our, our text from last week, as Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray, this is where the lame beggar is healed. Prayer was foundational. In fact, uh, James brother of Jesus. They called him Camel Knees. This was like his, his nickname because his knees were so knobbly from praying so much. Now, isn't it curious that the disciples, they never asked Jesus how to plant churches or how to preach, but they asked him, teach us to pray. In the early church, they would pray three times a day. Uh, this was their rhythm. As best we can tell, uh, in the morning, they would pray through the Lord's Prayer. In the afternoon at midday, uh, they would pray through Shema, and they would pray for the lost. And in the evening, they would pray through a psalm. This was their liturgy, prayer three times a day. Now, I could say so much more on this, but let me just say this. The depth of your relationship with Christ will be a direct result of your prayer life. If we feel that God is distant, which can happen, and for various reasons a good first question to ask is, are we praying regularly? Are we making space for him? Uh, you know, I think Sunday morning isn't enough, right? Like, that's like drinking one glass of water a week and trying to make it to the next Sunday. You know, like, if Jesus is the living water, we need, like, what do doctors say, like, eight glasses a day? All right, like, prayer is our lifeline. Like, prayer is like oxygen. And secondly, your power for ministry will be directly connected to your prayer life. Every revival has started with prayer. Jesus even told the disciples that certain demons could only be cast out with prayer and fasting. It's in, the, in, it's in prayer that we learn to hear God's voice. And so Peter and John's authority, it started with knowing Jesus intimately. But they were also, 
empowered by the Holy Spirit. The text says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke with boldness before the council. So much so that the council was astonished, knowing that Peter and John were only uneducated, common men. Power and boldness for ministry come from the Holy Spirit. If you remember the the thesis statement of the book of Acts, it's verse 1-8. says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Where do we often look to for power? Well, we live in a performance-based culture that idolizes intellect and competence for one. So we look to expertise, we look to knowledge for power, and we even do this with Christianity, right? We believe the more books I read, the more podcasts I listen to, the more conferences and seminars I go to, the more power I'll have. The ones who hold uh, the most knowledge have the greatest influence. Well, not according to the way of the kingdom. True power also isn't found in self-confidence. Right? We're told to look within to be our true selves, and that when we disregard the thoughts of everyone else, we can bust down any door, do anything we set our minds to, but the thing is, man, like when I look within myself, like I realize I'm weak, I'm insecure, I'm broken, I'm in need of help. And I think we all know deep down that we're not as strong as we think. We're fragile, we're, we're sensitive, we're prone to comparison and sin. And this is what drives me to prayer and to ask the Holy Spirit to fill me each day because I can't do it on my own. Do you know how hard it is to face each day without God's presence? We don't earn power. We don't conjure up power. We receive power through the Holy Spirit coming upon us. Peter and John's boldness didn't come from being, with, being filled with education, self-confidence, or even a substance that reduced their inhibitions. Right In Acts 2.13, we see that Uh, The apostles and the the early Christians are accused of being filled with wine because they're speaking in different languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. It doesn't come from a substance. It doesn't come from being a part of a majority. Their boldness came through being filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Some of you this morning, you know that you're filling yourself with the wrong things, trying to find power in the wrong places, But the invitation the Lord has for you this morning is to empty yourself, deny yourself, so you can be filled with more of his presence. Some of you this morning, maybe you you used to be bold in your younger years, right? Hungry for more of God's spirit, but gradually you settled into a comfortable life. You feel this tension in your heart. You want to be bold, but you're afraid. Maybe it's fear of man. Maybe it's fear of being disappointed, and you need hope. You feel like God's let you down, and like the lame man, what you need is for Jesus to heal your heart. Bring that fear to God. He can handle it. I'm going to circle back to this itch for boldness in a bit, so just put a pin here. Some of you, you also need to hear that God uses uneducated common people, right? Like, he doesn't see things the way we do. 
Right? Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. God uses regular people who love him to do amazing things for his kingdom and glory. All it takes is, are we hungry for him? Are we available? Are we humble to be used by him? I love what Nancy Wolgamuth says. She says, don't assume you have to be extraordinary to be used by God. God specializes in using ordinary people whose limitations and weaknesses make them ideal showcases for his greatness and glory. What qualifies us to be used by God? Weakness, brokenness, admitting our need for him, dependence. Finally, we look to Peter and John's example of radical obedience to Jesus. Now, obedience is, is such a, like a word that we, we tend not to like, right? Just follow rules, you know, that's kind of associated with obedience. But, you know, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Obedience is about love, trusting that Jesus, the author of creation, has a better vision of reality than we do, and that we're going to trust that. So when the council asked them not to preach Jesus, Peter responds by saying, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They've seen the kingdom breaking in. They're seeing God move in power. Can't stop talking about that. This is good news. So Peter and John, they answer to a higher authority. They didn't allow the fear of imprisonment or persecution frighten them and lead them to disobey God. Galatians 1.10 rings true for them. The Apostle Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We serve King Jesus before any other ruler. Now, I know that we've all got our opinions on politics and government, but here's what we see in our text today. Peter and John didn't set up like an anti-establishment group in response to the council. They simply found themselves in a situation where obedience to God would be compromised if they obeyed the council's instruction. So I've got a big quote that I want to read by Brian Vickers. He, he speaks to this passage um, and to the implications. It's a big one, so take a deep breath and we'll get through it, all right? So this is what it says. As a rule, Christians are to live in harmony with their governments, praying for everyone, including the authorities, and pursuing a peaceful life. Christians are explicitly told to honor the emperor or the king, president, chancellor, or government. We must recognize that governments, even the most secular ones, are placed here by God, and our responsibility is to obey them as God's instruments for carrying out the law. Disobeying them puts us under God's judgment. Believers' obedience to civil authorities is a sign of their greater obedience to the king. But, and this is the important part, when believers' obedience to authorities would mean disobeying God, when their profession of Christ is in danger, when they are threatened with punishment for standing up for their faith, they must join Peter and John and declare, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard, regardless of the circumstances. Believers do not set out to oppose authorities, but their faith in Jesus may cause the authorities to oppose them. It is at that point that believers' allegiance must be clear. See, Acts 4 marks the beginning of opposition, persecution to the church. But we have to clearly distinguish preference from persecution. Right? Preference 
is a whole different thing entirely than opposing Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Slight inconveniences are not the same as persecution. So let us be slow to say that we're being persecuted lest we downplay the real significant persecution our brothers and sisters in Christ in Iran are facing this very moment. What we see is that the obedience and resolve Peter and John demonstrated, while they faced opposition, it actually worked to strengthen the other believers. If you just take a peek down at the next uh, passage in Acts 4, you'll see that the apostles go and they tell their friends what had happened, the other believers, and they respond with worship and prayer for more boldness. Not for prayer for the opposition to stop, not for prayer for the circumstance to change, but prayer for greater boldness. And then they were filled with more of the Holy Spirit. Persecution didn't squash the church, but it only worked to make it stronger. Now, my point here is that Peter and John, they were willing to obey Jesus even when it cost them something. Now, if you want to see regional change, if you want to see change happen within the lives of your community, if you want to be used more by God, are you willing to obey Jesus even when it has consequences? Again, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do we love Jesus to the point that we're willing to surrender our bodies, our relationships, our time, our words, our finances, the entirety of our lives to him in obedience? Like, never mind persecution. We struggle to obey Christ simply because we love our idols. Now, if you're walking in disobedience to the purposes of God, chances are you know it. Maybe it's an addiction or it's a relationship soaked in bitterness and animosity. Or maybe it's simply quenching the Spirit's voice in your life. You've sensed promptings of the Spirit, but you're afraid to follow in obedience. Maybe it's simply living in a default mode of fear of man rather than fear of God. So long as we fear man more than we fear God, at some point we'll disobey God. So if we want to see the kingdom of God come here in Coquitlam as it is in heaven, our obedience and our consecration are important. The Lord is looking to use those who reflect his light in this dark world. He's looking for those who take time to hear his voice and then respond with urgency in this broken world. Our spiritual authority is tied to our knowing Christ, being filled with the Spirit, and living in radical obedience to God. Now remember when I told you to put a pin in that spot for a moment when it comes to that itch that we have for living boldly? Well, I believe it's connected to obedience. So I want to share a quote by Pete Gregg. If you don't know Pete Gregg, he's the founder of the 24-7 prayer movement. Um, basically, the 24-7 prayer movement is a movement of prayer where they've got like locations all over the globe. Uh, prayer rooms where people will go in and they'll pray every hour of every day. And I don't know how many of these are over the world, but the stories that have come out of this movement are just incredible. There's even one in Vancouver at the corner of like Hastings and, I don't know, by Oppenheimer Park, I think. Um, used to be a meth lab. And people have been praying for like 20 years there. Nonstop. So this is what Pete Gregg says. He says, saying no to the Holy Spirit is far more dangerous than the alternative. By saying no to God's leadership in your life, you will miss out on the actual reason for which you were born. 
you will quietly live a second-rate life, sometimes sensing the missed opportunities, feeling unfulfilled like an actor waiting to perform without knowing why. When you become a Christian, you take your first step out of futility and into your destiny. When you keep surrendering your life, your plans and preferences again and again to the Lordship of Jesus, saying yes to whatever he says, you look around one day, blinking in amazement at the ways he has deployed you, the places he has taken you, the person he is enabling you to become. And so I believe for some of you today, God wants to invite you into greater depth of intimacy with him. He, he knows you. The question is, do you know him? He's inviting you into deeper abiding with him. Don't fear him. For some of you, maybe the invitation is to be filled with more of God's spirit. Right? We know that like, these, these believers were filled again with the spirit because they were, they were filled at Pentecost. And then in Acts chapter 4, it says that the Holy Spirit, uh, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They'd already been filled. But like, as Pastor Mark says, right, the reason we need to be filled again is because we leak. Right? And so maybe, maybe for you, you just need to grant more access to the spirit in your life. For others... Maybe, maybe what you need to do is lay down, lay down something that you've been running towards for a while. Maybe you've been running in a path towards disobedience, and Jesus wants you to experience the joy of obedience that's in him, life found in him, life to the full. And you just need to surrender. Man, Jesus has more for you. Let's have surrendered hearts. Let's be with him. Let's be empowered by his spirit not puffed up with knowledge, not filled by other things, looking to alternate sources of power that really don't have power at all. Let's be radically obedient to Jesus. Let me pray. I want to start by praying Acts 4, 29 to 30. This is the prayer that the early believers prayed in response to Peter and John's story. And now, Lord, look upon the threats that come against us and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed throughout the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So Lord, we ask, fill us with your spirit afresh to speak of your saving power with courage, having not shame, but full confidence in the gospel, that it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so Father, I pray in this moment that you would destroy any fear of man that we have. Lord, we long to fear you greater than we fear man. Lord, would, we, would you break in us what needs to break? God, would we have soft hearts ready to follow you at any moment? Lord, would you destroy uh, any, any fear of worldly power as well? Lord, we look to you and know that our salvation is secure and that we don't need to fear him who can destroy only the body. Lord, we thank you that you are our Father and that you are good. You give good gifts to your children. Lord, would you increase our fear of you, our reverence of you, our faith in who you are, that you are not just the God of the book of Acts, but you are the God who's continued throughout history. You're still building your church. You're still raising up disciples. And so, God, I pray that you would just break off fear in the name of Jesus, that you would break off disobedience, that you would break off apathy to you. Lord, would you wake us up? Lord, would you invite us, continue to invite us into what it is that you're doing. Give us eyes to see what you're doing. Give us ears to hear what you're saying. 
feet to follow in obedience where you're directing us. And so God, I pray that we would be believers of boldness and courage. Lord, that we, we would run after you with all of our hearts, Lord. God, would we not be afraid of what other people think of us? Lord, would we know that we have the words of eternal life because we have you? We're pointing people to you. And so God, we pray that you would just bring your kingdom here in Coquitlam as it is in heaven. It's in your name we ask, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.